Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Johnny Ryan, Head of Ecosystem for PageFair and author of A History of the Internet and the Digital Future. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Thanks, Aidan. Great to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. For anybody listening, you've got to check out Johnny's blogs, really, really insightful stuff about the future of media. But today we're going to focus on GDPR. Johnny's an expert on GDPR, and particularly when it comes to tracking and media, etc. Johnny, I'll hand over to you because I'd love if you would get your definition of GDPR and what it means to the media ecosystem. Thanks, Hayden. It's very hard to give a short definition because including the recitals, this regulation is over 90,000 words. So uh, it's kind of like giving a summary of Game of Thrones. It's <laughs> done. Um, kind of like the Game of Thrones, though, you can say things like there are a lot of uh, sex and violence in it. In, in the case of GDPR, the focus is to protect the citizens' right um, in the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, it's Article 8, the citizens' right to protection of their personal data. So one way to think about this as a citizen or as a business is that the GDPR takes something that has been the case for many, many years, and it finally gives the regulators and a person who might take a case in court the ability to actually enforce these rules. So let's talk about the, the general principle that is about to become enforceable in a very serious way. It concerns what personal data are and who owns them. So personal data are essentially any data that can, even in combination with other data, help identify you out from a crowd of people. Anything that could help identify you out from a crowd of people Anything like that is personal data. Now, in your case, Aiden, you are always the owner of personal data about you. And if I am a business that is using personal data about you, in a, in a sense, I am a temporary custodian. I do not own those data. You as the data subject always have the power of ownership over those data. So as soon as I as a business can fully understand my role as a data controller or processor, the shortcut to understanding how these things may be enforced in the future is to understand that actually Aiden as the data subject always has the power over the data that I happen to be holding at this time. And if I want to use those data for any particular purpose, I need to make sure that I have a sound legal basis. In many cases, not in all, that will be that Aiden as the data subject has told me it's okay to do these things with his data. So it's a big mental shift for companies that have for years accumulated as much data as they could and thought that this was a competitive advantage. It may still be a competitive advantage if they can build a relationship of trust with the data subjects. But if actually the data subject does not even know who the business is and how that business got their personal data, then those businesses are going to be in a very, very tough spot. Let me say something else about it. A lot of press has been given, probably rightly, to the level of penalty and the, the fines that regulators will be able to impose because the fines extend to, at a maximum, 4% of global turnover in the preceding year. This is big. But what's at least equally important, if not more so, is that <clears throat> the regulation opens up the prospect of what you might call class action lawsuits by data subjects, in other words, by users of a service. And in some member states, it may be possible for nonprofit privacy organizations to represent an entire class of, of users. So you could envisage that the users of an online service represented by a nonprofit organization could end up uh, suing a, a large online service for very, very significant amounts of cash. So that, that's a major issue. And another is that there is a provision in the regulation for a clawback of revenue that was generated um, by the misuse of personal data. So this is profoundly challenging for large organizations such as Google and Facebook. It's also quite scary, I think, for SMEs. Um, and this has a extraterritorial effect. 
companies anywhere in the world, in the United States, Australia, India, it doesn't matter, who want to access the European market must have a representative present in a European jurisdiction who is addressable by our regulators. So if you want to advertise to or, or offer services to anyone in the EU, you come under the, the you, you become subject in a sense to the GDPR. Now that's my very brief summary of 92,000 words. Hopefully it made some sense. So this is potentially devastating for companies who use data by tracking. And Johnny, it'd be great if you would explain to our audience how tracking happens on websites. So let me introduce you to some jargon. There are two ways of describing this. One is real-time bidding. Another way of describing it is programmatic advertising. Now, what both of those bits of jargon mean is a very, very instantaneous auction by um, websites through uh, through online auction exchanges for the attention of people who are visiting the websites. And this system lets, in the space of milliseconds, it lets potentially hundreds, if not more, of would-be advertisers put in bids for the opportunity to show you an ad when you visit a website. And all of this happens in the space of time in which a web page loads. So it's very, very quick. Now, the problem is that there are many, many companies involved in making that happen. So if I'm a brand, let's say Johnny Ryan's uh, cornflakes, right? And I want to reach, let's say, a yuppie young parent audience in Renla. I need to, to try and figure out where those people are. And every time that kind of person appears on a website, I might want to bid on that kind of person and not others. Now, the way that that works is I, as the brand, store whatever data I have on my own customers, which may be kosher. I store this on what's called a DMP, a data management platform. You don't need to know the acronym, but just think of it as a data warehouse. And this data warehouse is always trying to get more data on these data subjects to understand them better. And the reason it does that, well, the main reason in theory, is that another type of company, a DSP, which acts as the brand's agent in auctions, that DSP needs to get as much information about what this intended audience looks like out of the, the DMP, the data warehouse. Now, a DSP is like that person who's, who's at a physical auction and is on the telephone. They are receiving instructions from the person who wants to make bids. And the DSP knows how much I, as the brand, am willing to bid on a particular audience and when to make a bid and when not to. So you've got DSPs acting on behalf of brands and consulting DMPs, the, the data warehouse, for the kind of person that the brand is trying to reach. So before you visit a website, there, there are hundreds of DSPs waiting to check to see if you're the kind of person that they've been instructed to bid on. And they are consulting DMPs to know as much about you as possible. You then come along and visit a website. If, if you visit rte.ie, the website serves you the editorial content on the page, and then it has to make a request for what ads to show you. It makes a request to a company called an SSP, supply-side platform. It's the counterparty to the DSP. The SSP's job is to tell at least one ad exchange, that's the auctioneer in a sense, is to tell the auctioneer, this kind of person has arrived on our page. In fact, this specific person. Here's their cookie. Here's everything we know about them. Would you get bids for this person's attention from as many people as possible? So RTE has asked its SSP to ask an online ad exchange for bids, right? Now the, the ad exchange then solicits bid requests from as many DSPs as possible. And what this means is that hundreds, maybe more, maybe over a thousand different brands have the opportunity to make a bid for the opportunity to, to show you an ad. Now you may or may not see that ad, but this is all happening in the milliseconds before the page loads, and it's happening for every single ad. So assuming there's four ads per page, and assuming there are hundreds of DSPs bidding, your cookies and the details on you are being sent to these hundreds of companies. And actually, if that picture was not complicated enough, let me make it more complex. 
because this assumes there's only one ad exchange in the mix. What websites are starting to do is to consult many, many ad exchanges in, in so-called header bidding. I'm using a non-technical shorthand here. What this means is that there, there could be many more than a thousand DSPs involved. Now, I've used a lot of acronyms and technical descriptions here. What I'm describing is a process that exposes your personal data to hundreds, if not thousands of companies every single time an ad is requested for you. And this means that the, the, the data warehouses, even if they haven't submitted a bid for your, your ad, uh, for their ad to be shown to you, that data warehouses often get the opportunity to continue to accumulate data based on your visit each time you load a web page. So you've got this funny situation where advertising agencies are acting on behalf of brands to try and find the cheapest way to show you ads on pretty much any website that they can get a cheap price for. And at the same time, to enable that to happen, you've got these data warehouses which are accumulating as much data about your online behavior as they can. Now, let me add in another area here. There's a company called a data broker. And a lot of these companies started off life in the 50s and 60s, almost as paparazzo, you know, um, photocopying court records or any details that they could get for the insurance industry or the private investigations industry, um, any details that they could get to serve that kind of client company, the, 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 the data brokers now serve the interests of online media as well. So your cookies are being enriched. The, the data that you provide in a normal web session are being enriched when they go into a data warehouse with the offline data that these data brokers already have on you. So what I'm suggesting is that there is a situation where in order to show you the right ad for, for some revenue, websites are inadvertently leaking your data. And under the GDPR, none of that will be legal. They will not be able to do that anymore. There's another problem. Before I finish this long monologue, I'll introduce you to another problem. When a bidder wins the right to show you an ad, Aiden, that ad itself, the ad unit, may very well contain code. It may very well contain JavaScript. It's not just a picture of a car. It may have buried within it code that runs on the page that introduces more trackers. The problem that publishers are having right now is that they are leaking data in a manner that is no longer going to become, it's no longer going to be permitted under the law. And it's exposing citizens to, to pretty severe risks. And what they need to do is to start controlling what happens on, on their websites and what happens inside the ad creative. And when you think of that, and you think about the way media is sold by publishers, a lot of the people who are selling it don't even understand the starting point of this. So they don't know about <laughs> trackers, they don't know how cookies work. They're just yeah. selling what they see as numbers or spaces or CPMs, and they don't actually know. Yeah, and, and this is the problem because so many people who are selling advertising came from the publishing world, Yeah, did a one-day weekend course in uh, digital and all became digital experts and have no real essence of what is going on on these websites. And it's about to all come tumbling yeah. down. And, and therefore, nobody knows what to do. Well, well, first, let me say that I don't think that those people who came from pre-digital into digital are the problem. I think that they are going to be the solution. The people who are the problem are the people who are too young to remember a time before this system. <laughs> the people who remember the old normal, those people are going to get the future. But we're currently in this anomalous period that, that actually doesn't give someone entering the, entering the industry now uh, you know, any perspective. So the, there, are, there are two authorities on this that I, I think are worth talking about. One is a guy called Sean Blanchfield, who you know. Um, he's the CEO of the company I work for, PageFair. And I'd say he is one of the very few people in the world who understands both the legal situation and in a very, very deep level, because he's a, he's a network engineer uh, by training, he understands the technical level. It is unusual, I think, in our industry to have a feel for data protection, 
and fundamental rights on the one hand, and the actual mechanisms that we currently use in the industry to sell people's attention, because those two things are not compatible. So it's been very useful for me to work with a guy like him who, who gets both sides. The other person who's worth talking about, and, and I'd recommend them as someone to read to anyone listening, is a guy called Bob Hoffman. Online, he's known as the ad contrarian. <laughs> so he would refer to himself as a dinosaur. He ran two different advertising agencies in the age of print and radio and cinema and outdoor advertising and TV. And he, he has looked on the, the digital change as a disaster. And up until, up until the, the new regulations, I think he's correct. It has been a disaster. It's been a disaster for many brands who are afflicted by very significant levels of ad fraud, where you have pieces of software online masquerading as people and clicking and viewing ads and charging brands for that. It's also been a disaster for media because you're seeing a situation evolve now where I can go to rte.ie and look at expensive coverage that you have produced about the situation with the Brexit negotiations this week, for example. And based on my cookies in RTE.E, a DMP and DSP together can know that I'm a valuable prospect. And if I then go to bikinibabes.com, I can then be advertised to much cheaper. But they, they only knew I was the right prospect because I was on RTE.ie, right? So, so we have a very, very strange situation. And I think to a large extent, the new regulations are going to force the industry to correct this problem. What has to happen is that on the one hand, publishers need to control the, the data leakage that's happening on their web pages. This is something that, that in our company we are doing actually, this is what we're doing for publishers. Once you do that, you break an awful lot of the mechanism that we currently use to, you know, to sell advertising. And we're working with a cluster of, of advertising technology companies that are rebuilding that system in a way that complies with the GDPR. Now, this also carries with it the opportunity, I think, for digital advertising agencies to start listening to the dinosaurs who maybe they, they haven't respected enough. They need to start listening to the dinosaurs who understand how brand value is built because everything that we know about online advertising, it turns out, has been largely incorrect. And the scandals that we've had with brand safety, massive scandals with brand safety in the last year, the scandals that we've had with targeting, for example, Politico released, um, released a report last month showing that Facebook was enabling people to target segments of people who hate Jews, <laughs> right? That kind of stuff. So a huge, huge issues with 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 the automation of segments and how that can run amok with the absence of, of, of humans from the equation. The third issue, massive levels of ad blocking, which is an issue that PageFair has been looking at for five or six years now. You know, 615 million people around the world blocking ads on their devices. And, and finally, um, the issue that I mentioned already of bot fraud, multi-billion dollar fraud, where brands are are losing a lot of their, their cash. And if you think of where brand money goes, for every euro that a brand spends, less than 50 cent makes it to the actual publisher. And The Guardian proved this when it bought its own advertising through this ad tech system, of which we are a part. And they found, I think, that they got 36p back on the pound. So there's a whole lot of issues. And you know that famous line, it's a very old one, that one should not waste a crisis. The GDPR hopefully is an opportunity for our industry to stop and reconsider its direction, which for 15 years has been the wrong one, I think. So it's been a race to the bottom in media, basically, and we've seen that reflective in CPM cost per thousand prices. It used to yeah. be around 50 pounds in some case, and now you're, now you're lucky to get 50 cents. It'd be, yeah. it'd be great to talk about the bot fraud because we explain this to people, but they don't understand that. For one side, a lot of the buying is automated. So you set up your you set up your campaign, and basically the machine takes over and buys for you. But on the other side, 
you can also set up fake websites and actually set up fake ad clicking, for example. Well, you described it in a nutshell. Clearly, this is a disaster for for the RTEs and the Vogue's and the Financial Times of the world. If you're premium media and you actually invest in content, content which is such a catch-all and commoditizing word, so I, I'm reluctant to use it. Let's say if you actually invest in editorial, in writing and in video and in pictures with proper photographers taking them, it is the most terrible betrayal of the of the the digital media system that another company, a fraud company, can masquerade as you and sell your audience in inverted commas. Now they're 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 selling a fake version of your audience. So that's terrible for media owners like RTE, for example. But on the other hand, even on real websites, you have bots masquerading as users with the real website's connivance so that the website can charge brands for more money. So we have this two-sided fraud game and we keep getting news every few months of a major biggest ever fraud being uncovered. <laughs> you know, multi-billion dollar fraud just uncovered, but uh, you know, this will never happen again. Clearly there's a problem with fraud detection as it currently works. And clearly there's a problem with the pricing mechanism and pretty much everything else in digital media as it currently works. What is bizarre is that the brands and the premium publishers upon whom this system depends have allowed this to happen. I think what has happened in both cases is that these people did not take digital seriously early enough. And digital was put into a corner somewhere as a pet project of some, you know, some, some visionary, but that, that internal visionary mightn't have had enough internal authority. And so, so digital ended up being a kind of a, a second thought. I, I'll give you an example from when I used to work at the Irish Times. We and every other publisher were embroiled in a, a scandal several years ago because it turned out that we had signed up to a communal arrangement under the Newspaper Association of Ireland, as it was then known, I think, a communal arrangement where we were charging. <laughs> we were charging organizations if they wanted to link to us. <laughs> so if you wanted to publish a link to rte.ie slash news story of the day, right, for, for you to, to disseminate RTE's product, RTE had the right apparently to charge you for for, for that link, as did the Irish Times and the Independent and everyone else. You know, this ended up being a scandal because the agency in charge of that billing ended up billing the Rape Crisis Center, I, I think, for a link to an article on the Irish Times that cited the good work of the Rape Crisis Center. <laughs> now, I give you that example to show how wrong the media bodies who are normally sensible about how, how media should work, how wrong they were initially and, and how wrong-footed they were about some digital issues. But the irony is these are exactly the organizations that are right in how media should work. They, they have now learned how digital ought to work and they've learned that a lot of the early promise of digital has not been delivered on and was in a sense, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, smoke and mirrors almost, uh, a kind of a, a utopian dream. And now it's time for the wisdom of print and digital, sorry, of, of print and TV and radio to come back to the digital world. And let me describe how some of that might work and bring it back to the GDPR. The GDPR says you can't use personal data unless you have a legal basis for doing so. And for online advertising, Right, for, for where you're targeting ads, the only legal basis that is practical is consent. Now, I'm not talking about direct marketing using emails where you're emailing customers that you already have. That's a different thing. But for online behavioral advertising, the only possible way to make that work legally is with consent. And consent can only work once you've killed data leakage. Now, when we, when we surveyed people and asked them if they would give consent, <laughs> I think 3% in our survey, which is up on pagefair.com slash blog, 
I think 3% of the people who we asked said they would give consent for third-party tracking across the web. So what I'm describing to you is a situation where consent is not at the moment practical for websites. It's not going to happen. And even if one had it, one would not be able to enforce data protection for the personal data that one has consent. So the only practical alternative is to find ways of targeting advertising that do not use personal data. And that means targeting advertising based on the context of what people are reading. You can do this in a sophisticated way, in a way that is more sophisticated than one could have done in print. But it's much closer to how advertising worked in print and in radio than the current digital system is. And just to put that in context, we had Sean on the show, Sean Blanchfield on the show, and we talked about this. You're reading a sports magazine you get an ad for sports equipment or you get an ad for nutrition, sports nutrition. Mm. It's in context. And, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but that's that's what PageFair ultimately does. We are, in a sense, complicit in the status quo. <laughs> Although, as an internal actor in the industry, we, we're raging against the machine quite often. But yes, this is what we do. What we, what we are working on right now is taking that programmatic or real-time bidding automated system that I described at the beginning and making it work without using personal data. In in slang terms, Aiden, what we're talking about is playing the ball and not the man. The advertising agency does not need to know about people. It needs to know about segments of people. So they need an abstracted view of a type of person you know, a, a yuppie who wants to buy this particular breakfast cereal. The current system builds that that segment by knowing each individual inside the segment without, under the GDPR, I, I would suggest, a legal basis for doing so. So that's about to become illegal. But you can build segments without actually using personal data. And that means that the agencies working on behalf of brands have all of the information that they've ever needed, and they, they can do all of the performance measurement and attribution that they ever needed to do as well. It just involves replumbing the ad tech system. Now, something that is, is very heartening is that we've been taking this very outspoken view on the GDPR inside our particular industry. We're probably the only company that is, is saying that we believe the regulations mean what they say they mean and that they will be enforced as they say they'll be enforced. And we're content with that. (laughs) We we think that's long overdue. And so there's a cluster of, you know, of second tier, let's say, ad tech companies who are starting to come to us to work together with us to make all of that happen because they see there's an opportunity to displace the people who are at the top of the market. So there's a first tier of ad tech who are intent on keeping the system as it currently is, which will not be possible under the new laws. But there's a there's an up and coming type of ad tech company that is interested in changing and is interested in making this online advertising technology a clean and safe one. I'd equate them to the Teslas versus the old, dirty, um, polluting vehicle industry. Uh, so we're we're kind of building this consortium of Tesla-like companies around what we're doing, and it's I think it means that we are going to see a sustainable digital media that can comply with the law and protect citizens. It makes total sense, Johnny. And when you talk about that Tesla model, that's exactly how I see it and why I reached out because you guys are the new curve and everybody else is operating at the top of the current curve of growth Mm -hmm. and there's no more growth there to be had. But the problem for those companies is one, they're making money. So they won't look forward to how do I jump and make money in the future? And sometimes it takes something to break the system to, for people to actually realize that they, they can do this. But I was going to reverse a little bit and think one of the things I think you said is really key. What happened here? Because there's a bigger lesson here in innovation, say, which is in marketing, you said it, digital people, people who were interested in digital, it was usually a high energy person who was interested, maybe read a little bit, were saying, you know, there's something in this digital media thing. They got given the job of head of digital or, you know, you take charge of digital there. It doesn't really matter anyway. It's not making much money. They got pushed in the corner. As soon as 
a lot of revenue came into that corner, the other parts of the company started looking at it. And what happened has often often happened in that world in publishing is then it gets bundled together and it's totally undervalued and it's used in a, in a way to sell the print ads, for example, or the TV ads, and they bundle in the digital for free. But mm. because that's been treated that way, it's never been given any value, A, by marketers and B, by the whole ecosystem. People don't see much value in it. Therefore, the prices have been reflected in that, and it's just gone down and down and down. What's your view on that? Two things. If you talk to the Financial Times, last time I talked to their head of digital sales, he was telling me how high their CPMs are because they've always placed a particular view on their products. I think the online digital market is a lot like the camera market. In the camera market, you had two categories of product. There were the, you know, the cameras that were three or 200 quid, pretty expensive. This is back in the film days now. And then you had the SLRs, you know, the, the big ones with the kind of twistable lenses that professional photographers use. SLRs go up to 30,000 quid. So two categories of product. Now, suddenly cameras, or at least a certain form of camera, a certain quality became free because they were built into our phones. Now, what happened in that market? Well, what happened is the free camera, which enabled anyone to take a picture, but it wasn't great quality. The free camera devastated the, the middle of the market, which was that compact camera of two or 300 quid. But SLRs, the expensive ones, are selling better than ever. I think what happens in a digital media market is the same. Whereas there were a whole lot of middle tier uh, offerings with no free alternative. As soon as there's a free alternative, a whole lot of free websites that are that are using AP and Reuters, just as the middle tier websites are, the middle tier websites find that their product is not good enough anymore to be paid for because people can get almost good enough for free. So the only way to survive in the digital market, it has always seemed to me, is either to go radically up market with a incredibly good product right, really, really high-end reporting, for example, or really high-end video, or to go free and cheap and go for volume. You either go for volume or you go for depth, and there, there is no in-between. And so you, you see some really interesting things. BuzzFeed, for example, and the Huffington Post, both in the last two years have invested large amounts of money in investigative reporting teams, including Pulitzer Prize winners. So they have tried to remove themselves slightly from the commodity market of media and go up a tier. When I was at the Irish Times, I was there for a few years as chief innovation officer. One of the projects I was working on was, I guess, an early version of what in the hype cycle you'd now call AI. But the idea was to work with so-called big data researchers in Irish universities to enrich even the, the simplest part of our reporting with really key insights that no one else would be able to produce at the, the cheap price that we could produce because we'd have some automated research feeding the journalist. Now, <clears throat> to be honest, I, I'm not connected with that project anymore. I don't know if it's being pursued, but that's the kind of thing that media companies need to be thinking about to reach that higher tier of product. And I'll give you an example of someone who's probably going to be doing very well. The Irish Farmers Journal. If you're a farmer, you need to read the Irish Farmers Journal. It's got the stuff you need, and they can charge for that. Whereas if you're just a general interest website and you're regurgitating AP and Reuters and whatever else is coming, and then adding in a whole lot of user-generated content, well, I can get that for free anywhere. So why should your ads be, be worth any more than, you know, than bikinibabes.com? Uh, I think it's all about either building value that can't be got somewhere else, which is expensive to do and involves organizations changing, or it's about joining the chorus of, you know, Daily Mail style websites where you're, you're going for a large volume of people and you're focusing on clicks. But here's the thing. There's another dimension to this now. Under the e-privacy regulation, which is coming in probably in half a year to a year's time, under the e-privacy regulation, the requirement for consent is going to be even more acute than it, than it is under the GDPR. And I think that 
the e-privacy regulation and the GDPR together will reward brands and websites who build a relationship of trust with their visitors, a long-term relationship of trust, where they can gradually get people onto a, a journey of giving them consent for uses of their data and eventually turning them into paying subscribers. Now, for the websites that are focused on volume and are interested only in clicks, they will be out of luck because under the e-privacy regulation, high value commodity online will not be the click. It'll be the trusted relationship. And those who are just going for clickbait are, are, are not going to be able to build those relationships credibly and are going to find that they will not be able to offer advertisers, you know, rich data offerings about, about users visiting the site because the users visiting the site will not trust the site enough to allow their data to be shared in, in that manner. You've always heard content is king and context is queen and she wears the trousers. When you think of journalism, so journalism is something that people have said is under threat for quite a long time. But in this world, journalism comes straight back to the fore again, quality journalism. Absolutely. Give me what I can't get anywhere else and inform me in a way that I need. Now, if you think of a brand like the Irish Times, the RTE is, is similar, and I'll get into that in a moment. The Irish Times is in a very unique position because it's owned by a trust. And the articles of the trust are about two pages long, but you can summarize them. I came up with a shorthand for myself, just so I knew what the purpose of the organization was when I was there. The purpose essentially is turn people into thinking citizens. Now, not everyone would agree with that summary, but I think that's that's the summary of the trust. It talks about concern for your fellow human, whether they're in your country or in another one, the wish to be informed and to turn people into informed thinkers so that they can better participate in a richer democracy. All of these high-minded ideals. Now, that sounds like a non-commercial thing, but actually that's an incredibly strong basis to try and build a quality product from because it says it's okay for you to lose money if you're turning people into thinking citizens, because that stuff costs money. But it turns out that that is at least as good a bet as regurgitating user-generated content is. <laughs> it's at least as good a bet, because what, what today in our information market is scarce is not news in adverted commas, it's trustworthy news and insight. You can get AP and Reuters anywhere, Right. Now, AP and Reuters are very good. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But you can get these kind of news anywhere. What, what's really useful, and the reason people listen to podcasts, for example, the reason The Economist is doing so well, is that the, the value add of insight, and I don't by that mean comment from a columnist. I mean very well-informed comment from a very good journalist who may be a columnist. That is a unique thing that people, I think, are willing to spend money for. It's the Nespresso audience, it's the Apple buying audience, it's the people who'll pay for the SLR camera. They don't have to be well off. It's not about who has the money, it's about who needs the insight. So that is, I think, the future market for media. And we've already seen a major investment by plenty of media houses in, in dominating that market. If BuzzFeed is doing it, <laughs> right? If BuzzFeed is trying to get out of commodity uh, re reporting and clickbait, clearly something interesting is happening there. Always, by the way, uh, or very often you find in a market that there is a, a premium product and then it finds, or sorry, a middle of the road product and it finds itself competed with by a low, a low uh, price product that is just good enough. Take Japanese cars versus American in the 70s. But before long, the Japanese car manufacturers start producing premium products, right? The Lexus, for example. And so not only can you not compete at the bottom of the market, if you don't adapt, you find yourself being outcompeted at the top of the market. And that's what the, the BuzzFeed threat is. I see this as a total analogy for innovation as well, Johnny. And I'm sure you worked as chief innovation officer. There's so much frustration in that role when you're Sometimes you're the chicken little calling out stuff that's coming. GDPR is that. I mean, some people think they're just ignoring it and sticking their head in the sand about it. But I'd love to come back to something because uh, 
you mentioned this before is so many people aren't ready in Europe for GDPR, but yeah. most of the ad tech firms are US based. So therefore this is totally alien to them and it's going to mean a huge part of their portion of their revenue just is under massive threat. What's happening in the US with regards ad tech and GDPR? <laughs> so we get paid by the hour to brief financial investors who are trying to figure out what's happening. It's one of the things that people approach us to start doing in the last, you know, 16 months. We keep hearing from American investors, why isn't Wall Street talking about this? The answer is, uh, we don't know. I'm not sure why there is such a disbelief that this could occur, that this disruption could occur. But I suspect it's because the old e-privacy e directive had such little effect. It was implemented in a very fragmented way across the EU. Each member state had their own way of doing it. In some cases, for example, in the UK, it, it had almost no effect. Right? The regulator interpreted it in a very, very light manner. The GDPR will be different because it's a regulation, it's harmonized, it solves a lot of these problems of fragmentation. But if you're still thinking about the e-privacy directive, you'd be right to ignore it. The problem is, it's not the e-privacy directive. It's something quite different. It has teeth and muscle. So people who were thinking about what happened a decade and a half ago might feel some level of, um, of comfort with ignoring it that, that is no longer justified. There's also another issue, which is that I think a lot of people assume that companies like Facebook and Google and so forth are already well insulated from the, inf from the effects of this. And they assume that, well, we can move marketing spend to those companies. I think that's a false assumption. I think Facebook and Google, from our analysis, are at least as exposed as everyone else. Let me talk about that for a moment. Let's take Facebook, for example. Facebook has this wonderfully large trove of data, of first-party data that we've given it. And one would imagine that that equips Facebook to be able to, to target ads using those data in a way that very few people other than Facebook and Google will have consent for. That's totally incorrect. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Aidan, let's imagine that you and I were out last night as college students and we made a show of ourselves and someone took photographs of us and put it up onto Facebook. Now we would log in the next morning when the hangover had, had cleared somewhat and we would maybe untag or tag ourselves, but it, it's part of the system in a sense that Facebook has asked us to provide. Look at us having a great time last night. Now those are clearly personal data and if we allow those data to, to remain up there, we are happy for Facebook to have those first party data. And we are happy for Facebook to show us pictures of other people's nights out who we know and to show us the pictures we're, we're in with them and so forth. This is part of the service that Facebook has our okay to provide us. And we know that it needs our personal data to, to provide those services to us. And that's fine. Here's the problem for Facebook. When Facebook wants to process those data for a different purpose, namely to mine those data and understand which ads would be most useful and generate the most revenue to target us with, that's a different purpose. And under the principle of purpose limitation in the GDPR, Facebook needs to have a legal basis for that purpose. It, in other words, needs to give us the opportunity to opt out of that before it does it, or if one feels those purposes for, for targeting ads are not compatible, uh, are not very, very close to the purpose of showing us the, the normal Facebook newsfeed, then it actually needs to get us to give a, an opt-in consent with all that that entails under the GDPR. So Facebook is going to need to ask people for the okay to use the data it already has on them for its advertising business. And you can't be certain that it will get that okay at all. And remember, this company has been embroiled in a series of scandals. Earlier this year, The Age, which is an Australian newspaper, reported that Facebook had been running a test with advertising agency researchers to target teens who, quote, feel worthless as a segment. Then about a month and a half ago, ProPublica in the US revealed that Facebook its automated systems were enabling people to target audiences who, quote, hate Jews. And then more recently, 
Facebook has been in front of the U.S. Intelligence Senate Committee, sorry, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee over its involvement with the Russian interference in the U.S. elections and presumably part of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. These companies may be sitting on a trove of first party data, but they don't get to use them willy nilly without consent. So they are at least as, as disrupted as everyone else. A few months ago, Google announced that it decided it would stop mining our personal email content to understand how better to target us with ads across the Google network. So Google unilaterally stopped mining email content for ad targeting purposes. But I would be very surprised if part of that decision was not based on the realization that they would have to ask people for consent to, to do that under the new regulations. And that if people refused to opt in, they would still have to provide the email service. In other words, they would be educating hundreds of millions of people across Europe about the ability to not opt in to mining for targeting purposes that have nothing to do with the service that you've requested. So Gmail tracking is an example of the kind of disruption these companies are going to experience. So there's one last thing to ask you about, Johnny, because that, that disruption is immense and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Just a quick word to our sponsors. This show is sponsored by Johnny Ryan's Cornflakes. The thing I want to ask you, Johnny, about was your your blog you wrote about the IAB directive because you see there's holes in that directive that came out recently. So the IAB is an industry body that represents primarily ad tech companies. Um, There are some publishers involved, but in general, it represents ad tech companies. And um, we, for example, are members of IAB UK. And, and IAB Tech Lab in the United States, in New York. Now, IAB Europe last week released a guidance document that purports to show the legal rationale why under the GDPR websites, so publishers, can ignore the GDPR and, uh, and force or try to force visitors to their site to give their consent for their personal data to be used for ad tech companies. Now, I'm going to give you a summary of what's wrong with the legal argument um, for anyone who's interested. They are relying on a misinterpretation of an article in the GDPR, Article 95, which says there shall be no additional obligations imposed by the GDPR uh, further than any that are already present in the e-privacy directive or the e-privacy regulation when that enters force. And they use this, uh, you know, thou shalt not impose any further obligation view to try and then ignore the rest of the GDPR and refer back to a recital of all things in the e-privacy directive. So recital 25 in the e-privacy directive says, you have a narrow permission to ask people to consent to the placing of cookies on their machines if that's necessary to provide them with the service they've requested for, uh, for, uh, for use of. Now, that is an allowance. It's not an obligation. So this means you can't use Article 95 and the GDPR to refer to it. But in any case, even if you could, Recital 25 in the privacy Directive only refers to services that the user has requested. In, in European legal terms, information society services. It doesn't refer to the mining of your personal data for the purpose of targeting you across the web. It doesn't refer to surveillance. (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. And even if it were, it only refers to the partial and narrow allowance for specific small parts of your website. So it's, as a piece of guidance, I'm not not assigning any um, acts of bad faith to IAB Europe, but, uh, but I am saying it's sloppy. And as a piece of guidance, it's wrong in part and in composite. And it exposes any website that actually relies on it to, to the risk of breaching the GDPR, um, essentially at the behest of a group of ad tech companies. <laughs> and this strikes me as very odd because we have demonstrated that you can target ads effectively, do everything you need to do without using personal data. And this means you can put every bit of your operation outside of the scope of these new regulations. 
So you can do everything the brand needs done to target advertising, and you can step outside of the scope of the regulations because you're not using personal data, which is good news for the citizen, and it's good news for the brand, and it's very good news for the website. So as a piece of guidance, we are surprised at at how deeply flawed it is. But let's talk about the principles involved. The principle that that guidance is based on is an assumption that personal data, the right to protection of personal data, is something that one can transact away. But in European law, certain things are protected as fundamental rights. Article 7 and 8 in the European Charter protect your right to personal data and to private life. Because many of our fellow European citizens across the continent have experienced living under the Stasi and have experienced living under the Soviet regime. And they take personal data very seriously. They, they take it as seriously as, as anyone who's been reading about the Cambridge Analytica scandal should. And the idea that one can transact that fundamental right away and say, I will sell you the ability to surveil me across the web uh, so that I can read this page of text uh, is incongruous. And the person who put it best is the European Data Protection Supervisor, Giovanni Buttarelli. This is just an opinion of his. This isn't a piece of law. But in an opinion he published earlier this year, he said, there may very well be a market for the transaction of one's personal data rights, just as distressingly there is a market for the trade in human organs. But you can't do that in Europe because we have fundamental rights that protect us. So it's it's not just that that guidance is wrong in the detail. It's wrong in its philosophy. It represents the views of an industry that has yet to realize what personal data ownership actually means. And until the data as a whole changes, there will be a great opportunity for up and coming ad tech companies who have made that mental leap. So Johnny, really, really appreciate your time. Dr. Johnny Ryan, head of ecosystem for PageFair and author of A History of the Internet and the Digital Future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Aidan. Pleasure speaking with you.